Hello, ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts because we're about to embark on a scorching journey into the world of metals, innovation, and authentic leadership. My next guest on the Manufacturing Culture Podcast is a man who truly knows how to turn up the heat, a titan of the furnace, and a mastermind in the realm of digitalization and corporate culture. Straight from the sizzling heart of Phoenix, Arizona, I'm thrilled to introduce Charlie Hushik. A passionate leader, Charlie stokes the fires at Phoenix Heat Treating, a multi-generational metals processing powerhouse, serving sectors as diverse as aerospace, defense, mining, medical, energy, and even firearms. Born and bred under the sun-kissed Arizona sky, Charlie's a Phoenix native who has returned to his roots after a stint studying construction management at Colorado State University. And, you know, I guess the construction world wasn't quite hot enough for Charlie because in 2017, he found himself drawn to the molten core of Phoenix Heat Treating. From donning multiple hats within the company, Charlie swiftly climbed the ladder to become the general manager in 2020. And if you think his achievements stopped there, well, you're in for a treat. He was also recognized by Heat Treat Today as part of the prestigious 40 under 40 class in 2022, a true testament to his fiery determination and exceptional leadership. When he isn't supercharging the metals industry with innovative ideas and leading edge digitalization, Charlie switches gears to be a devoted husband to his lovely wife, Alexandra, and a doting dad to their little champ, Wesley. Charlie, my friend, welcome to the show. We're absolutely thrilled to have you with us. Folks, buckle up because we're about to dive into an incredibly hot conversation about all things metal, culture, and innovation. Welcome to the show, Charlie Hushik. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks so much. That's a, that's a very kind introduction that you wrote. It's uh, I'm excited to be here and I, I love talking about culture. So I think that this is going to be a, a nice, a nice time. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and little fun fact, Charlie, you are the first heat treating person, uh, to be on the show. Uh, first person from a heat treating company. Um, and I find your business absolutely wild because you guys are like wizards that do things to metal that nobody really imagines. So can you tell us a little bit about Phoenix Heat Treating, how many people you have there and what really the wizardry is that, that you guys do to metals? Yeah, of course. I mean, Heat Treating in itself is a very niche market. I think there's a lot, there obviously is a lot more folks that are cutting chips and making parts than, than heat treaters. Sure. Um, and to your point, we are kind of an afterthought in a lot of people's uh, minds. It's just something that has to happen. You got to get your parts uh, hardened or softened, depending on the app, whatever the final application is. So not a lot of thought goes into it, except uh, for the folks that are in the industry, like like myself. So yeah, Phoenix Heat Treat is um, a unique company. It's family owned and operated. We've been in, in Phoenix since 1963. So wow. uh, August 30th of 63 will be 60 years in business. So pretty cool that we're... Uh, we're coming down a really, you know, storied history and we're excited about the future, but congratulations. That's a yeah. huge milestone. Thank you. And so we're transitioning to the third generation. So uh, my grandfather started the business and probably 1500 square feet today. We're 45,000 uh, square feet Two two buildings at our campus here in Phoenix. Um, we have five different major departments. So 
uh, aluminum processing, carbon steels, carburizing, carbon nitriding. Uh, we use salt processing, some Marquench and Ostemper, which is a completely different type of heat treat and, uh, and vacuum processing as well. And then we sprinkle in a whole bunch of different oddball things and unique requirements for the space industry, uphill quenching and thermal cycling for satellites. And um, so we kind of cover this wide range, which makes us really diverse. Uh, it allows us to stay in business and service lots of different customers, uh, which is pretty unique. And the business model of heat treating, just to kind of give an idea to, to level set, we're kind of like a big dry cleaner. Um, so I like this analogy because dry cleaners, they just clean your shirts and pants, right? And right. and out, out it goes. They're not tailoring. They're not adjusting the, the sleeve length. Um, so we're similar in the fact that metal comes in. We harden it in most cases, similar to dry cleaner cleaning the pants, right? Mm -hmm. And then out it goes. We're not tailoring. We're not cutting ch chips. We're not changing the geometry of the part. Um, we're just parts are coming in. We're processing and parts are going out. And so where dry cleaners get diversification is if they can do things like wedding dresses and curtains and, and the like. You know, everyone sure. does the standard shirts and pants. We're similar. So we do the, the harden and temper out of oil. Uh, we do general vacuum, but then we can diversify into things like salt, which is like uh, deep frying the metal, if you want to go to a <laughs> different analogy, and then titanium, and you know the list goes on and on. So you, you spread far and wide, and that's kind of what gives you uh, diversification within the market. So that's uh, awesome. Pretty high level, obviously, analogy, but kind of illustrates the point. I love the uh, multiple analogies in one answer. That That's <laughs> magical. Thank you very much. Um, because it, it really helped me uh, who, I mean, I've had the the thrill of, of being able to tour your facility, right? So yeah. I've seen uh, a lot of this stuff, but it's still magic to me, right? Just yeah. the concept of what you guys do is you're, you're changing the composition of metal. So it's still like magic to me. So those two analogies were, were great at helping me, somebody who's actually seen the process, uh, right. even better further visualize what's going on there. So thanks for yeah, that. Of course. Yeah, of course. Um, so Charlie, multi-generational, uh, th those are some of my favorite, uh, guests to have on, on the podcast here because, uh, you have a glimpse into, you may not have been around when, you know, your grandfather started uh, almost 60 years ago, but you have a, a unique glimpse into kind of the, the history of the culture. Um, so let's talk about that, right? Um, you joined in 2017. Um, what was the culture like leading up to you joining and, and your journey into the, the organization? And, and where was the culture when you joined? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, it's, I mean, I wear a very unique hat or perspective. I'm sixth generation heat treater. So, sixth. Um, yeah. So you think about, you know, wow. my family has been doing this since 1915 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And then obviously that translated, that was a different operation. Now here we are at Phoenix. So I've, I guess it's very much a uh, part of who I am. I didn't know it in, in university, but um, it, it definitely drew me back, like you mentioned. And so, yeah, my, my journey to where I am today is unique. Um, but I think the culture in itself is we're very, it's a very rough and tumble industry. It's hot, as you yeah. can imagine. It's, you know, it's not necessarily the cleanest environment. Think of 
Rudy, you know, at the steel mills with the fire <laughs> going everywhere. Right. Uh, that's that's some some product lines are similar to that. Some are very uh, sophisticated, and and we'll kind of touch on that when we look, when we talk about the digitalization of what we've been able to do. But um, I think as a whole, the company ran well. I think there was definitely room for improvement um, in terms of trusting each other and intentionality. Um, and really being thoughtful with how we design and develop a culture. Yeah. Uh, when I came in, uh, when I told my dad that I didn't want to leave construction, he had mentioned, okay, you know, obviously we'd love to have you, but you need to learn what we're all about. You're not just going to start as the general manager. Um, and so I said, okay, what does that, what does that look like? And he put me on the second shift. Um, we run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you know, we have anywhere from 600 to 700 open orders and whip at any time. So there's a lot of work flowing. Wow. And so we, I had to start on the second shift, really learning how to, how the processes worked, how the equipment worked. And, um, my, he asked me to do two years on that shift, which I did. And, and looking back, I was reluctant. Um, but now I wish I would have spent five years because I learned (laughs) so much uh but i I continue learning i think that's just part of who we are is always learning always evolving yeah so after that i kind of got onto the first shift and that's as a supervisor of two departments and that's really where i was able to kind of excel um and then from there learning about customer service and transitioning into that role and then working in an erp implementation which was big and then obviously 2020 was a formative time and, and i know that this is where i think a lot of our culture um, rebirth, I'd say kind of happened. So, uh, that was, that was challenging. And that's kind of when I stepped into the role of of GM. And then like you alluded to really just put gasoline on the fire to make this thing, uh, turn around and make it even better, uh, highlight some of the areas we needed to grow and improve on, acknowledge them and then learn from them and, and move forward. So, um, I think, you know, at the time it was very hard nose, get the job done at all costs, not necessarily as intentional as it probably could be. Mm-hmm. And now I think that uh, being very thoughtful, intentional with every facet of culture and how we do the work, I think is really important to understand. Um, that's where we were kind of on that path now. So that's awesome. And and so where where do you see this cultural journey taking you? I mean, and and maybe now is a great time to talk about digitalization and and some of the things that you're doing inter- internally to take and I hate the word antiquated, right? But an older industry, right? Uh, yeah. And one that's dark, dirty and dangerous, yeah. right? Um and, and bring it into a place where you are able to staff the jobs uh, that you need to or or the roles that you need to and and those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that this business or line of work inherently is hard. You know, it's not an environment that is super friendly all the time, although we try to make it as you know comfortable as we can. Mm-hmm. When you have furnaces that are at 1500 to 1600 and the door is opening, that's wow. inducing just a lot of heat in just by the the letter of the law, right? And so right. you do what you can to make the environment and you know as as appealing as possible. Um, we took a similar, I uh, took a, an approach that was probably more in line with uh, machine shops, where you know I looked at the landscape, I noticed that the true heat treaters, similar to that of what I would assume a true. Um, a tool maker who can make things on a manual 
mill and lathe, the, that <laughs> population is just not um, not readily available. It takes a long time to train someone to that level. And so from a workforce development, we had to plan and strategize around how can we keep operations with folks that aren't don't have 25 years of future experience. Sure. So we went very similar model of that uh, of the CNC where there's a program, the, the heat treat tech or operator simply loads the furnace. Again, very challenging job by its nature. Mm-hmm. But then the, the program is set and the parameters are set. They just hit go and monitor the progress. So our ERP system we put in allows for live job tracking. We went totally digital. We have no paper. And any of our quality system is all electronic. All the wow. training is electronic. Everyone has an iPad. They take pictures of loads before they go in. They take pictures at inspection. They take pictures at packing. Pretty much every facet of the operation, there's a photo that's attached. All of the charting and, and run process data is all electronics. We don't have any paper charts anymore. So uh, record retention becomes a lot more manageable. And so what that's allowed us to do is get super uh, granular if we need to. So we have some aerospace customers that require uh, a very regimented process where there's no deviation. And all we have to do is create a special recipe that never changes. And so what that's allowed us to do is onboard people faster, take some of the stress off, focus on really the core of what their what their job is, racking, loading, and unloading. Um, and obviously this is just one example throughout the plant. But yeah. We made, you know, we made strides into digitalization and that's obviously led to more of a customer facing approach as well, uh, which was a big cultural shift for us. We talked about being customer focused, but, um, you know, one thing to talk about it, another thing to really to do it. And so all of our customers now have access to a real time job tracking portal, similar to that of Amazon. You can log in, you can see exactly which operation parts are at. You can see if a job is on nonconformance for whatever reason, and it kind of holds both parties accountable. Sure, um, it's that level of visibility and transparency that I think is ne- is a necessity in today's supply chain. Yeah. That, like you mentioned, our industry heat treating lags far behind. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. If, and so we wanted to be forward thinking, innovative, and kind of leading the way versus um, kind of one of the lagging lagging indicators or lagging folks. So, so how do you ba- balance? I, I mean, it, it being a, a longer uh, or slower moving beast, right? Uh, as far as lagging behind uh, other industries in, in manufacturing, how do you balance uh, the idea of wanting to have that innovative culture with not really having the ability to innovate, right? Uh, right. It throughout the process. I mean, you, you can add these digitalization methods and and go paperless and and things of that nature. But how can somebody who's working there innovate and, and feel like they're contributing to that innovation culture? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you hit it on the head, right? It's like you refer to it as wizardry. Uh, you know what we the actual process of hardening steel, and there right. is a lot. There is a lot of that. What's you know what's kind of nice about it is I know that you know it's been tried and true for over 100 years that A2 is going to harden at 1750, and, and that's just kind of the way it is. So that right. becomes a constant, right? And your aerospace specs dictate what you can do, and, and the ramp rates, and 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 the like. So. Those things are constant, which is great. Actually, it takes a lot of the that takes one huge section off, right? Because sure. I don't have to worry about trying to come up with some secret formula to get 
A2 to harden out at 1400. It's just not going to happen. The material won't let it happen. Right. And so that lends itself to really put energy and focus into other areas. And we adopted a, a philosophy of the mine methodology and uh, something that I really uh, took to heart. And I've been able to come to know Lee Benson, the author, and, and he has a storied career, which, you know, able aerospace, and we can talk about it. But in essence, it's the most important, what's each team has a most important number. Yeah. And what are the drivers that are going to impact that number? And so that's where the innovation comes from, because like, a, you know, I use the analogy of being in football with our guys. At the end of the day, the team's got to win the game. Right. But then within each team, you know, um, let's use the Cardinals here in Arizona. <laughs> the linemen have their most important number and the receivers have their most important number. And everyone then can innovate to improve, tangibly improve that metric. And so yeah. the digitalization that we've had has allowed us to then look and say, okay, what is each team's most important number and how can we take proactive steps to improve that like tangibly? And if we make an adjustment and we innovate, we should see a measurable impact to the most important number. And that's how we know it. And then the drivers are kind of the things that uh, you can, the levers that you can intentionally influence that are going to uh, have that measurable impact. So that's awesome. Most of our, most of our operational team's most important number, just to add context, is something that a metric that we came up with. And it's a combination of internal on-time delivery. So how what's the internal dwell time that we need to get op- parts through inspection, for example? And then how well do we do it? A first run utils first run acceptance. So it it's kind of like a variation of OEE uh, for equipment, but it it implies every every operation because everyone needs to meet their internal due dates and then they need to have it be good work. Obviously if it gets rejected, it's not worth anything. So that we encourage the people on the floor to say, Hey, if we did this little difference or Hey, if I got this tool or we added this uh, one more person on this shift, it would have a measurable impact to the men. So now you get the, the real time feedback that, that innovation is providing value and you're getting a return on that investment. So that's awesome. So uh, for those uh, people who aren't familiar with Lee and, and the mind methodology, can you, can you talk a little bit uh, uh, about that most important number? Is that similar to KPIs in in your world? Uh, Okay. Yeah. So similar, I mean, above KPIs are great, right? And most companies now have KPIs, but you can have all your KPIs be green or in, you know, in the space you want to be, but if the company's not profitable, then what are we really doing? Sure. Right. And so I look at, you know, and I can get into lots of different examples, but if you don't cascade from the top, meaning, and for most for-profit companies, which obviously we are, mm-hmm. it's going to be some, rev- some, some variation of profit, EBITDA, uh, you know, cash flow, cash on hand. Right. And then from there, everything cascades down to all your supplemental teams. And so kind of like a a river tributary, right? All these little branches come off. They all need to be feeding the, the team, the team above it, most important number. So, um, you know, all our operational teams are going to feed revenue. Revenue is going to feed profit, right? And that's kind of self-explanatory. So similar mindset, but the the key differentiator is that you are making decisions that are going to, your thought process is, is this a critical decision that's going to measurably impact the most important number? Yes or no. Okay. And if it's not, then do I need to spend time on it today or can I spend time on it tomorrow? 
because at the end of the day, you should, our mindset is we should always be developing and improving that most important number. And then that will pull the whole company forward. And that's where the innovation really comes from. So right on. I love it. Um, So Charlie, you talked a little bit about, you know, different roles that you had within the organization. How has those experiences, uh, you know, shaped your approach to leadership, shaped your approach to, to culture and, and, and the organization as a whole? Yeah. Good question. Um, I'm a younger guy. So I think I grew up with this notion that culture, you know, what is culture? How do you know, you hear about culture, company cultures, ping pong tables, and there's free buffets. <laughs> right. You know, and all this stuff like that was kind of just ingrained and is an important thing growing up. Um, and so what I have to still culture to is really what you say you're going to do and how you go do it. Right. And so your mission, your vision is what you say you're going to do. That's why you're in business mm-hmm. and how you actually go do it where the rubber hits the road is, is really the meat potatoes of the culture. And that doesn't necessarily mean ping pong tables and, um, you know, free lunches, right? It can, it can be celebrating wins and that's a big part of it, but right. that that's the only way to have company culture. I know, you know, you look at, um, we work, some people would say fantastic company culture. They had these camps and these parties and, all this fun stuff. Well, unfortunately, they're not they're not doing so hot right now, right? So right. that's just one example. Um, my experience, I got to see the plant in almost every different light. I got to see it from the the heat treat tech's perspective, the guys racking parts. I got to see it from the customer's perspective. Um, obviously, growing up in a family business, I got to see it from the owner's perspective because it was something right. we talked about all the time. And then growing up with this notion of culture is important and people need to feel valued and they're our most important asset, you know, that's kind of an outside influence, but all those things kind of came together to shape, I guess, this desire to improve, always be improving, find a better way every day type mentality here at Phoenix Sea Treats. So right on. Um, so you talked a little bit about, you know, the, the cultural heritage uh, of the organization. So talk to us a little bit more about how you balance uh, the, that heritage. Um, and it's even more than 60 years, right? I mean, you guys, you, I think you said 1915 or 1905. Yep, yep. I mean, that's, that's a uh, hundred years plus. Uh, so how do you balance uh, that kind of heritage within your family and, and your lineage uh, to really the the changing needs of the industry beyond that digitalization. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, we're we are a, our family is unique in the fact that not many folks can say they're you know my dad's fifth generation, I'm sixth, <laughs> right. um, and so. But I do think that there are some constants from 1915 to today, right? customers, you have to be customer focused, we have to be customer centric, and we have to do it in a relentless pursuit to focus on that. It doesn't matter if it was my grandfather starting off as a little tool and die shop with two salt pots and a couple tempers mm-hmm. to 1915 servicing forward in the war, in the war efforts, you know, the customer is, we are a service provider. And at the end of the day, that is what we do. And so our vision is to be the most customer centric heat treater in the country. That is a lofty lofty goal yeah but if we make decisions throughout the organization we hire and we train people that this is what we're all about then that constant 
permeate, permeates through the entire organization. And so when we're looking at hiring people and, and we're looking at uh, doing reviews and performance snapshots and, and we're looking at just this whole ecosystem of what culture means, rubber hits the road, how you do the work, at the base of it is a constant that the customer is so critical. And without yeah. them, we wouldn't be here, right? We don't make parts. We need people to send us work. We're a yeah. job shop. We don't have any, we don't have any contracts with anybody as of yet. So we are a hundred percent dependent on providing a good service. And that comes in lots of different ways. That comes in the form of obviously fast turn times and affordable costs, but it also comes at uh, highlighting folks to say, Hey, this is a problem part number. And are you sure you want to take this one on or, you know, we've seen this one before and it's been really challenging. This is how, you know, it's going to cost you a little bit more, but here's the downsides and educating them. All of those things and have, go into this general constant that you have to be customer focused. And that is, is deeply ingrained regardless of what era or who your customer is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it is part of this whole industry. And it's definitely part of a folk, renewed focus for us as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think it was Richard Branson who said, you take care of your people and they'll take care of the customer, right? Um, and uh, obviously, you and, and Phoenix Heat Treating uh, leadership team are, are doing that. Um, we're trying, that's for sure. I don't know if it, we're perfect every day, but it's. I think it's that continuous pursuit. It's that relentless pursuit. I love Amazon. If you go to relentless.com, it takes you to takes you to Amazon's website because Jeff Bezos had this had this relentless pursuit to be the best possible marketplace. And that formed his entire decision making. And so if you think about that philosophy and you and you roll that out to whatever industry you're in, certainly, you know, heat treating is just one example where being a relentless pursuit to have the best possible cost customer experience is critical. And that and that starts with our folks and making sure they understand the expectations and then cascading that to our customers. So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you talked about (laughs) your views on culture, right? Your vision, your mission values, et cetera. How have those changed, uh, since you came on board and, and have taken the the helm as as GM, have you revisited, uh, the, the values and mission statement, vision statement of the organization, or have have they remained fairly constant as well? No, they, they have a hundred percent changed. And I think that that's healthy. You know, I think that it's good when things are evolving and, and people are, you're self-reflecting. And so when I joined the, the, vi- the vision and mission and core values were something that you think a lot of companies that can fall into this trap. They just, they put it on a piece of paper and it looks good and it makes people feel good. And, you know, but in reality, it's just really expensive wallpaper if that's yeah. all it is. And so what we did is um, did something a little unique. We put out a, a totally blind survey to all of our employees and we essentially asked them the question of what behaviors do you most example or do you most appreciate in a coworker to put it short, you know, okay. so, People appreciate it if their coworkers were on time. They appreciate it if they, uh, you know, worked hard, if they celebrated wins, if they thought about it as a team. And and so we got all these different feedbacks, but it's behaviors, right? Because that's where rubber meets the road. Yeah. And so we took all those behaviors and we basically synthesized it into to four kind of main themes. And, and those became our core values. And it's a positive, a positive attitude and mindset. 
team orientation, attention to detail, and strong work ethic. You can tangibly take behaviors from each one of those and say, Charlie is a good teammate because he helps people with when they without being asked. Yeah. Charlie has a strong work ethic because I don't have to go look for him, right? A high performer Phoenix Tree does has a positive attitude. And when challenges are when challenges arise, they don't run away and point the finger. They they go in and try to solve the problem. So you break these things down that you can tangibly look at and evaluate and celebrate those times. And so where I think a lot of people is they get these monster lists of of you know uh, values and and it sounds really good to on the on the the management level, but then you go on the floor and you know my my favorite example that Lee uses is integrity right people go to the floor and say show me how you have integrity, and you get a bunch of blank stares yeah and so but if you ask somebody well do you do what you say you're going to do and they go oh yeah okay well I think that's a pretty good behavior demonstrating integrity, integrity. so right but they don't sometimes people don't always put the two and two together. Whereas these core values they came up with, they, they are very much to own. And it's not something that just got pushed from ownership down saying, these are our new core values. This is something that they had an invested interest in. And, you know, again, these things take maybe putting the cart before the horse here, but if you have a vision and core values and you don't do anything with it, it's just a waste of time. Excellent. And so we've, we've hired folks off of these core values. We've, we've given raises and promotions based off these core values. We've demoted off of these core values. And unfortunately, we've had to let people go because they didn't live up to these core values. Yeah. And so that's where you make it more than just something that sits on the wall and becomes part of the wall. Uh, but yeah, we, we really have looked, and that was probably uh, last year, I would say, early, late 21, early 22, we did that exercise. And uh, it's been really good. And now we're rolling it into performance reviews and revamping that, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool piece of the puzzle here. That's awesome. I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, all too often, you know, core values or, or company values are just that wallpaper. They're, they're arbitrary words that leaderships thought sounded great. Um, and they don't really mean anything uh, out on the floor. Um, and, right. and really that's, in my world, that's all culture is, is, is that alignment of values of the organization and, and the values of the people down on the, the floor, the employees. Um, right. and, and that's when you have a, a positive culture for the organization. Um, and, and yeah, so that's wonderful. How else have you involved uh, the employees at Phoenix Heat Trading in the, the cultural process, right? Um, have you, I mean, you, you did this survey, how else uh, are you getting their input? Yeah, no, uh, the next big piece that we're, we're rolling out and it'll be kind of a, a 180 from how people traditionally do performance reviews, but I think it lends itself to this conversation is again, stealing from, I feel like a broken record. I got to give Lee a shout out after this, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's got this philosophy of, of something called a performance snapshot and, and it's really a new way to think and reframe and be very intentional about reviews. You know, people traditionally sit in a review with their manager, they go through a checklist, they go, you know, just go through the motions and everyone kind of leaves. Like I click, I check the box and I don't really know uh, if I'm adding value. I don't know if I'm winning or losing. I don't know how I'm helping this team. Uh, did I get a raise? Did I not get a raise? And then they kind of just go about their business. Right. And so 
that's not adding in my mind tremendous value to the team and, and the most important number, but either to the individual who's getting right. the review. And so we're taking a very different response and different uh, approach and we're, we're adopting this performance snapshot, which in essence breaks down to kind of three, three main core th- uh, you know, questions, but it's done as a group, as a team, because who knows the employees better than their coworkers, sure. right? And, and it's not meant to be, you know, make somebody bad, but if I can provide feedback to somebody that I work with and say, Hey, I have a really hard time doing my job when I can never find you, or when you're always taking a smoke break or whatever that looks like, what's going to be more powerful, the guy that they work with every day or the yeah. guy that the manager that they you know interact with 15 minutes on an eight hour shift or an hour out of an eight hour shift. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at, there's really three criteria, the most important number, are you winning or losing as a team? How are you actively participating in that number? And how, what are the things you can do to improve on it? How well are you actively, uh, you know, delivering on your outcome-based roles and responsibilities, which I think we can probably get into. That's a whole nother tangent. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing well? What are areas that you can improve on? And then uh, the last one is core. Are you, are your culture? Are you, how are you living the core values? Can you stand up here and defend that, you know, some examples of when you were a good, you know, teammate and how you celebrated wins and what does that look like? And then inversely, if, you know, giving the group the opportunity to say, Hey, I, I always use this example, right? I may go, yeah, guys, you know, I, I really feel like I'm positive influence and I'm really approachable. And and then in the group setting, somebody can look, go to me and say, hey, Charlie, I know you're really trying. I can tell that you're working on this, but you walk around with such a scowl on your face that no one wants to come talk to you. You're not approachable and everyone's scared of you. Well, that's really good feedback. That's not making me a bad guy. That's not saying that I'm a, a horrible person. But it's giving me really valuable feedback to say, oh, man, maybe I need to smile a little bit more and loosen up when I walk and talk to people. And and that how much better does that make the full team? And so your question about getting the team involved is is exactly that. We're we're incorporating these teams into this performance snapshot where ideally the, the person leaves going, "Okay, I know what I'm doing well. I celebrated those awesome things. And I also know the areas that I can tangibly improve on. Right. And I know that there's areas that I can grow and, and it's going to, if I improve on them, it's going to make the team measurably better. And we're going to see that measurable change because of our, our most important number. So those two things are, have been instrumental into, um, you know, incorporating the team approach and incorporating all levels of the organization. Um, there's others obviously that we can talk about, but those are kind of the, the two really big ones where we really incorporated uh, everybody from the organization. So. That's really neat. I, I like that approach uh, because it, it does bring healthy conflict to the table, right? It gives people the chance to to give real-time feedback to other people in a safe environment. Right. Um, but that that's got to you've got to have a high level of trust organizationally, right? Yeah. To be able to, to do something like that. How have you guys built the trust uh, between employees on these teams to be able to even approach these reviews or these snapshots in this way. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is being open to criticizing myself, right? I have to put myself out there um, and letting people know, Hey, you're not going to get fired or something. I'm not going to hold a grudge if you tell me how I can be better. And I think it all starts at the top, right? This would never have even been an option if, our operational team didn't all agree. Yeah, we need 
this is an awesome experience. So we all went through the experience um, with uh, someone helping guide us through it, which was awesome. And so once we realized that, hey, I can provide feedback and it's not to put this person down, but it's to make the team measurably better because we're in this thing for the team, then that that was huge. Right? And I think that cascaded down. Additionally, we it very intentionally compensation is always something that's tied to performance reviews, right? And so we very intentionally, the very first thing we did when we're rolling this out, said this is has no bearing on compensation. Smart. Because we don't want that to, to uh, muddy the water or have somebody feel like, oh, I like my buddy John. I'm not going to say anything bad because his his raise is dependent on this outcome, right? right. It is a piece of the puzzle, but it is not the only uh, part of the equation. And so those two things have been really key. We've done a lot of training with facilitators here. Um, you know, obviously I, I'll be involved and have been involved in, in all of them. And I think that's critical as we get this thing going. Yeah. And then we need to work on how do we make it more of a ritualistic experience versus something you do once a year, right? Ideally, we figure out how to do it on someone's work anniversary. So instead of it being a one year thing where you're just everyone's cl- cl- jumping in the conference room and doing it, it's it's maybe every month we're doing one because there's somebody who has a year anniversary or something like that. And then it becomes more of a ritual and you get better at it. You realize that this isn't a scary thing. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people who for sure are looking at it going, I don't know how this is going to work. And so <laughs> having facilitators and managers. And then the other first thing we're doing is out of any group, the the lead and the manager are the first two to get it. So that we're setting the precedent early on that we want the feedback. We want, from the floor is, am I as general manager giving you the tools that you need? Is a guy, he treat tech getting the uh, information that he needs from his lead? Right. Is the lead tangibly, you know, removing roadblocks? It's going to be very clear, yes or no. And that just starts a really good, healthy conversation about, hey, yeah, we're in this thing together and this is why it's important. And there, I have some tangible things I can leave with feeling like if I do these things, I'm going to add value to the organization. That's awesome. I love it. Um, sorry, Charlie, I'm blanking real no, quick. Um, you had mentioned something that I, uh, my pen wasn't working. You had mentioned something in your, uh, snapshot. There were three elements and there was one thing that you said, maybe we'll talk about this in a little bit. What was that? Yeah. Yeah. The outcome-based roles and responsibilities or outcome-based responsibilities. Um, yeah. All right, cool. So I'm going to ask you a question about that now. Okay. <laughs> hey, Charlie, you mentioned uh, something about outcome-based roles and responsibilities or outcome-based uh, performance yeah. as part of your snapshot. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So I think traditionally, again, uh, when you look at job descriptions, they have this long monster list of all the different things that you need to do, right? Mm -hmm. And it can get super overwhelming. And if you really take a step back and look at it, they all kind of feed to three or four, maybe five, but I haven't seen more than three or four really outcome-based responsibilities. And it sounds cliche, but if you have to, let's just take... um, inventory management, right? That you may have all these things. You got to check in the, the calibration reports. You got to order, you got to maintain inventory, you got to do X, Y, and Z. And, and But in the reality, it's just, if you distill it all down is you have to be able to provide the team uh, the tools necessary to complete their job, right? And that is so broad, but it's by design. 
Because at the end of the day, if I don't provide the tools or I don't remove obstacles so the team can accelerate the men's uh, progress, then that's really all that matters. And that can come in the form of different activities like doing inventory management, like doing training, like doing X, Y, and Z. And so instead of this monster list, you have these three or four things that you can distill down and say, hey, am I connecting culture uh, and strategy to you know, business operations? Uh, am I doing, am I removing obstacles for my team? And that co- is this huge thing. It's a yes or no. It's very black and white in that way. Yeah. And kind of like the core values, you have the ability to look at them and say, what are these actions that feed that? Uh, feed the core value of teamwork, right? Similar idea for outcome-based roles and responsibilities. The goal is that then, because you only have to know three or four things, it becomes a lot more manageable to really own them and to know them by heart and not just something that is, on the, again, on a piece of paper. You're actually living them. And so if I'm a heat tree tech, I know that I got to keep my furnace, uh, at, you know, utilize, limit my gap times. I got to do good paperwork. And I got to treat the property and tooling and equipment as if it was my own. If I have a heat tree tech that did that, oh my gosh, that would be, that's awesome, <laughs> right? And But that manifests itself in a ton of different actions. Sure. And so, but those three things are really easy to kind of learn, understand, and really uh, take ownership of. So. so is that what you have on your you know, job descriptions when you post, I, I don't know where you post, if you put yeah. something out on Indeed, um, is the, are those outcome-based responsibilities on the job yeah. description instead of that laundry list of needs to be able to do X, Y, Z? Right. And I that's a good point. And I think this is where we are in this constant evolution, right? If I were just to put those four things on a job post, most people would... It, it's hard to conceptualize that until you sure. sit down and really talk and train and, and have somebody understand. So when we do hiring, we we still put all the activities because that's what people, they know and what they're used to seeing. Oh, I know how to do that. Right. Oh, I can check three or four of these things off. Yep, I think I, I'm an applier. I think I'd be a good candidate. But when you get them in, and this is where onboarding, I think, becomes so critical in an area that we are working tremendously hard to improve is... We want that person to know what the expectations are day one in a very intentional format. And we want them to know, hey, this is how I'm going to win or lose. This is how I can go home each day and say, yeah, I had a great day because I limited my gap times. I had no paperwork errors and I treated the equipment as my own. Yeah. Man, that's a good day. And you can say, I went home you know, feeling good about yourself. Um, and so to your point, you still it's, you have to blend the two worlds, right? And if I were to just put all this stuff out there, it would be lost on a lot of folks until they got here. Sure. But on our job descriptions, yeah, the core values are the number one thing. There's a quick description. Here's the here's the mission. Here's the vision. Here's the core values. And here's the outcome-based roles and responsibilities. So um, it's an evolution that we're working on. Not to say that our onboarding is is poor now. It's, it's good. But we want to enhance it and make it even better. Um, and we've even taken that a step further in our offer letters. We wrote a, we wrote basically a, a long form letter to any candidate saying, hey, this is what you're going to be joining if you join our team, if you take this offer. This is what we expect as a high performing employee of Phoenix Heatreat. And if that sounds like something that you're interested in and you want to join this team and you feel like you can satisfy those behaviors, then we want to have you. And here's what we can pay and from a compensation standpoint. So before they even accept the job, 
or getting people in the mindset of thinking about, wow, this is, they take this stuff seriously. This is what a high performer looks like. Am I a high performer? Or, uh, you know, I kind of like to skate by, okay, maybe I'm not going to accept the job because I know what they're already expecting of me right before I even sign on the line. So, um, so and, I, and, and that's awesome. I, I love that approach. How do you, screen for cultural fit when you're doing the interview process, right? So this is the, the, the job post is there. You've got this long form letter. How yep. do you screen in between those two uh, points uh, for the, the right cultural fit? Yeah. So the, it's more like indeed posts or wherever we, you know, we get a lead from somebody. We also have a referral program internally. So we get, we get the person, we get to talk to them. And then we just ask them, what does that look like in your mind? What does a strong work ethic look like? And if somebody can't answer, they have no idea, or they don't, those behaviors don't align, like you mentioned, then maybe not the right fit, right? Maybe they are, maybe, maybe that, you know, they have really good team orientation. They can, they can share examples of how they solve problems as a team uh, at a previous job or in a previous role. Okay. That's awesome. You know, they understand that that's important and we can coach anybody up. He treat is to this, you know, going back to pulling it kind of full circle, putting parts in a vacuum furnace and running them at 1750 gas van quench to get a too hard is standard. I can teach somebody how to do that. I can teach somebody how to read a, a line chart to understand times and temperatures and recipes. What's more challenging is to understand if somebody, when the going gets tough, are they going to keep a positive attitude? Or are they going to point the finger and go take three extra smoke breaks, right? right? <laughs> and pretty quickly, those people stand out if you have a team that's bought in. And so then it allows you to have conversations within that first 90 days and say, hey, you know, we've noticed X, Y, and Z. Let's just talk about it. Are you getting all the resources you need? Do you know what you're working on? Do you need help? What obstacles can we remove for you? And if it continues to persist, then, you know, that's a totally different conversation, obviously. But if they know what the expectation is once they get in the system and then you can say, Hey, we talked about these expectations, you know, what's expected. Maybe I wasn't clear. How can I help? What obstacles do you need? What training do you need? Yada, yada. It just sets the tone so much uh, more efficiently. Right. Sure. And, and I think that what a, com- a lot of companies struggle with and, and Phoenix Heatree, I think fell into this category early on is, you know, intentionality around culture, you know, And, and really being thoughtful about the employee's experience from the minute they set up a, you know, interview to what the interview looks like, to what onboarding looks like, getting super detailed about how you present the offer letter. What does that look like? What's the drug testing? Yeah. You know, you go through this whole thing. And if you do that for every facet of your organization, that is really where the, the intentionality is one of the biggest things that we have added. And, and again, it's not to say we were a bad company, you know, previously, it's not to say that anything we're doing right now is bad, but yeah. we can always be more intentional. We can always be looking and analyzing to try to be more um, efficient, more uh, value add for the new hire, more value add for the customer and, and the like. So wow. that's that kind of continuous mindset. Yeah. So uh, leadership, you know, and, and, leadership development is something that that plays a vital part in uh, uh cultural journeys uh, of organizations 
how do you and Phoenix Heat Treat identify the next you know generation of supervisors and leads uh, yeah. within your facility, and and how do you train them uh, to lead in the same shoes that you are? Right. Good. Good question. Um, you know, I for a long time I thought everyone was just going to climb up this ladder of you're going to be X Y Z and you're going to just going to go on up and up and up and up and yep. I think that that is great. And there are some folks that that really uh, articulates well with, but, you know, just take a step back before I answer your question. I think most employees fall on a bell curve, right? And so 80% of the employees are probably just those really high perform or just good employees they are solid. They show up to work every day. Uh, they do what you ask, you know, they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. Then there's probably 5% that are these, you know, high performers stars that you're just going to feed, feed, feed. We'll talk about that in a minute. And there's the 15% that you kind of got to coach up or coach out. Yep. You can get that 80% to be just 2% better each year. I mean, you think about what that's going to do for your organization. So my, my mindset shifted from feeling like I had to take that 80% and make all 80% of those people or that, that bubble to be this massive superstars. And the reality is that's just not the case for everybody. Right. And so then it kind of allowed us to focus on, okay, who are these or these 5%, you know, in this very general, you know, macro view, <laughs> um, you know, who are this 5% that are really exemplifying the core values, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who are the ones that uh, when they're, when there's challenges, they're running to them saying, Hey, how can I help? How, you know, and then from there, that kind of self-selection process, Oh, I want to learn this new process. Oh, I want to accelerate. Hey, are there any classes I can do? Um, those people stand out pretty quick because they're just living the core values at a, at a level that's a lot higher. Yeah. And that's not to say that 80% is poor. That's not what I'm trying to get at. They just, they self, uh, they show themselves in a different light. Yeah. Then there's a couple of resources we've utilized. We have one uh, lead going through the NTMA uh, chapter here of emerging leaders. We, we're kind of testing that water, uh, see how he does. He seems to like it. Um, We've utilized the Metal Treating Institute, which is our, our trade association for heat treaters. They have some some phenomenal uh, online training uh, for new leads as well as an in-person training. So uh, the in-person has gotten so popular across the country that you have to almost book two years out, uh, wow. which is crazy. But that just shows you how much of a how much of a need there is for quality leadership within our industry. So we've gotten some folks through that. I've done that. Uh, we've got somebody who's going to go next year, so that's great. That's awesome. I, I love it. And Charlie, your 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 level of vulnerability and and ability to to build that trust, I think, has led to the success that you're seeing on the cultural side. I mean, just a, an outsider looking in, hearing you talk today, uh, one of the things that really sticks out is is how vulnerable you're willing to be with your teams and and take that criticism and take that feedback and become better from it, right? Use it as actionable, uh, insight, actionable insight and, and do this with that intentionality that you were talking about. So hats off to you, man. Well, I appreciate it, Charlie. Thank you very much. Uh, And there you have it, folks. That was Charlie Hushik, the heat treating maestro from Phoenix Heat Treating. Our conversation today was a deep dive into the smelting pot of company culture. We touched on everything from 
performance snapshots and performance reviews, making the transition over to snapshots to uh, the dynamics between multi-generational workforces and everything in between on the employee experience. This episode was packed with insights on shaping a vibrant, thriving company culture. So I urge you to listen again, take notes, ponder the golden nuggets of wisdom that Charlie has shared with us today. Remember, you can always revisit this episode and explore all of our other insightful conversations at the manufacturingculturepodcast.com website. While you're there, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode? Now, if you've enjoyed this journey today as much as we have, please share this episode with your friends, colleagues, your boss, or anyone interested in the world of manufacturing. Word of mouth is the best way for us to reach more people who, just like you, are keen to learn about the intricacies of the manufacturing industry. We'd also, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Your ratings and reviews help us improve and help others find our podcast and the crowded podcast universe. There's so many podcasts out there. So please take a minute to rate and review the Manufacturing Culture podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen today. As I wrap up today's episode, I want to again say a massive thank you to our guest, Charlie Hushik, for taking us on this amazing journey through the fiery world of Phoenix heat treating and sharing his experiences in shaping a dynamic company culture. Thank you, uh, listeners, for tuning in and being part of this incredible manufacturing culture community. Until next time, have a great day and keep making things. Mm -hmm.